And over the past few weeks, Ali has been teaching us that the kingdom of God, if you don't know this by now, (laughs) I would be so shocked, but it is the loving rule and reign of God on earth. It's his place of constant activity. And we know that um, God's original design for his kingdom was displayed right back at the beginning through the Garden of Eden. And as a part of this original design, the boundaries of Eden were meant to be extended to the ends of the earth. And this is what we entitled as the Kingdom Manifesto. But then the enemy and sin entered in and together they disrupted this plan. And then God chose Israel. We can read about it in the Old Testament. He chose them as a nation through which he was going to demonstrate this rule and reign to the whole world. But, of course, uh, with hindsight, we know that, that Israel weren't able to fulfill their side of the covenant agreement that they made with God. So God himself came. He came in the form of Jesus to display and to embody what the love and rule and reign of Jesus, of, of the kingdom of God, looked like. So remember that the kingdom message was to repent because the kingdom of God was at hand. That's what Jesus came to declare. Then we learned that that God's heart is always invitational, that his deep longing is for us to partner with him to extend the borders of this kingdom out beyond ourselves. And this is what we termed as the kingdom method. It was relational and it was through an ongoing, consistent, close and deepening relationship with Jesus that the kingdom method could be embodied. Then the kingdom mission is what Jesus himself came to set in motion. He came to to, um, put a match to that and to get it started. And it's the proclamation of the good news, the proclamation of the gospel, where we are teaching the deep meaning of what it is to have this good news in our lives and to heal every kind of sickness and disease. And so the main land and strip of where we have arrived at over the past few weeks as a church, and I suppose the reason why Chris held the Catalyst meeting on Thursday night was that God's desire is for us to join him, to partner with him, to inspire us into more relevant, culture-altering ways to see systems and principalities that are set up to oppress and bring division. He wants to see those things brought down. And in their place, he wants to see new systems imbued with a heavenly standard set up in their place. So that's kind of a a quick summary of the past four or five weeks of where we've got to, okay? But look, we're at this long enough to know that we can't do it on our own. No matter how hard we strive or no matter how many nice programs we put into place, we need Jesus to be front and to be center of all of our plans and all of our strategies. Otherwise, we're really just doing what the world does, okay? And this is where I kind of want to launch off from this morning. In order for us to be effective in partnering with the Lord to help establish the kingdom, we must, first of all, be people who walk in the fullness of kingdom authority. And kingdom authority is, it's not just authority, there's a whole other level to it. And that's what I want to delve into this morning. But before I look at any of the biblical examples of it or any of the meanings behind it, I want to first of all just put it into our context for us in the 21st century. I can speak for myself here and I imagine I can speak for a couple of people in the room when I say that for some of us, we, we find it hard to come under authority. Uh, It's a really modern-day characteristic that you see right across the world that um, people put so much value on individualism, on autonomy, and uh, and on, like, uber-independence, if you like. And we tend to then tolerate authority 
only to the degree that it serves us, right? As long as we can get something out of it, we'll tolerate that authority. But let's be really honest with ourselves. A lot of us find this notion of authority to have some jagged edges. It can hurt a bit. And that's because we haven't really had good experiences with authority. But for those of us who love Jesus and are telling the world that we're living our lives for him, it's really vital that we come into line with what scripture says about it and how uh, his spirit helps us understand it. And it's really kind of more important than ever in the chaos of everything that is going on in the world that we get this part right. So what does kingdom authority mean? Well, you've probably had time there to read that. Like, I am not a Hebrew or Greek scholar, so I'm going to give it my best shot in pronouncing these words. But if you know that I'm doing it wrong, just give me a wee bit of grace this morning on that, okay? When Jesus was using this word kingdom, the root word that he would have been using for kingdom was this word. Let's go with Malkut, okay? And what this word means, it's primarily, it's not a geographical area or a realm or even a people that inhabit an area, but what they this word that Jesus was using in terms of the kingdom is it's the activity of the king himself. It's where Jesus is at work. It's his exercise of sovereign power. So when Jesus is talking about kingdom, he is essentially talking about the ongoing work and the revelation of God on earth. That's what the kingdom is. And then when he talks about authority, he uses this Greek word exousia, Let's go with that one. And it's quite often, right, it's going to blow your socks up. It's, it's translated as authority <laughs> or power. But the deeper meaning of this word is that it's kind of like more like an influence. It's like a moral influence, a jurisdiction, a dominion over a certain realm, a right, a privilege, or an ability. You see, when we look right back at the beginning of the Bible, we can see that there is a chain of authority. There is a consistent, intentional, spiritual influence that manifests as the activity of the king, that manifests as heaven breaking in, and it travels right through the whole of scripture. The kingdom should have influence in the way that Jesus did when he was here. That is the purpose of the kingdom. And right back from the beginning of the time when the world was created, we can see that all authority belongs to God. God simply speaks something or commands it to be, and it happens like that. That's authoritative when you are able to say something and it come into being. His sovereign power was always at work. The kingdom of God was consistently breaking in, and yet it wasn't yet fully realized. You see, heaven's original design for us as his children was to partner with God and have dominion over the earth. We can read about this in Psalm 8 in verses 5 and 6. It speaks of God's original intention for us as his people. He says, you made them only a little lower than God and you've crowned them. You've crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything that you made, putting all things under their authority. That was the original design. That's what God wanted. But sin got in the way. All the things that embody sin like ego and the need for status and ultra independence and all the things like murder and all that kind of stuff as well. All of those things came together and they obstructed God's original design for authority to be used in a way that enhanced the kingdom. You see, kingdom authority gets corrupted because of sin and the authority that belonged to humanity, unfortunately, by man, gets handed over to Satan. Authority then becomes authoritarian and that's when it's not healthy. It becomes a dictatorship and that's why so many of us get wounded by authority. The dominion that God gifted to us is given to the enemy and it becomes domination 
And again, that's why so many of us are hurt. Just like Satan did, when we elevate ourselves to use authority rather than to steward authority, we totally misrepresent Jesus because he never did that. He didn't use it, he stewarded it. And that is our responsibility as the church. And that's why for so many of us over the years, authority becomes nothing more than abuse of power. And that's why so many of us have problems with it. On the flip side of that, when we see authority being used in a life-given, graceful, truthful way, we feel so refreshed by it because that's the way it's meant to be. God wants to restore his original design and he sent Jesus to be this really practical, real example of how to live in the fullness of this kingdom authority. So I want to take a wee look at this verse in Isaiah in chapter 22. Verses 20 to 23, it's three verses, it's not one. And uh, it says, In that day I will summon my servant Elikim, son of Hilkai. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. So clock that name, right? Eliakim, Elikim, that man, right? And um, <laughs> it says that he's going to be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. And I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. He will become a seat of honor for the house of his father. So the context of this verse is that it's a prophetic declaration by the prophet Isaiah to this man called Shebna. And Shebna was um, employed in the house of King Hezekiah, and he was the royal steward. And as the royal steward, the responsibilities that he had was that he acted as the mediator between the king and the common people. That's what it was to be a royal steward. I'm sure you know where I'm going with this, right? He was the mediator between the king and the common people. He was the one who could get an audience with the king anytime he wanted it. He was the one who had around his neck or around his shoulders the key to the house of David. But he did something really wrong. He exalted himself. He abused the authority that he had. He was all about position. He was all about ego. And he gave himself more authority than what his role um, actually was all about. And what God was doing through this a prophetic declaration from Isaiah was he was bringing about a reordering of biblical authority. And so it's really important to know that, the, this is what I love about scripture, like I, this, is, this is amazing, the name Elikim or Elikim, whatever it is, he, this name means resurrection of God. It's not just, like, wouldn't that blow your mind? This prophetic declaration, hundreds of years before Jesus even came here, this man was a type and shadow of Jesus in the house of David. And Shebna was then essentially someone who abused and misused the authority. He was a type and shadow of the enemy who had taken the authority from humanity. Remember how David was described as a man after God's own heart. You see, it was his desire to create the temple, the temple, a place where God's presence, where his loving rule and reign could reside permanently on earth. It was like a reestablishing of Eden again. David got it. He was so close to God that he understood what the original mandate was. So when the key of David is prophetically handed over to Elikim, it's a declaration that Jesus was going to be the one who was going to come and regain ultimate authority as the resurrected one to see the kingdom come. It was going to be taken off the enemy and given to the one who understood how to steward it best. So Jesus was the one who had the authority to open and shut the doors to the king 
beautifully prophetic, isn't it? I just love that. Like, but of course, it goes much deeper and wider than that. And before we delve into any more of how Jesus communicated kingdom authority, I just want to take a quick jump into the idea of what authority would have felt like for people in New Testament Israel so that we understand a bit more of the impact of the words that Jesus had when he was communicating with his disciples. So as you know, as a nation, Israel had existed under a significant amount of slavery and captivity and coercion over the years. Authority for centuries had been demanded by other nations from them. And during their existence, the latest one at the time of Jesus, of course, you know, is the Roman Empire. Now, in the Roman Empire, the idea of authority was all about imperialism, which means that no matter the cost, Rome was going to spread its power and influence and anything that got in its way was going to get wiped out. That's basically the agenda of the Roman Empire. So the people in Judea and Samaria and Galilee, they lived under serious control, really heavy taxation, and their resources were continually being taken from them to help build this enemy state, to help build the Roman Empire. So this will sound familiar. The rich people got richer and the poor people got poorer because they had to pay taxes to the temple, they had to pay taxes to Herod, and they also had to pay taxes to Rome, which meant that they were left with very little resource for themselves. And within that, so many different approaches as to how to best deal with the Romans rose up. So you had the zealots who thought that they, you know, could uh, fight back. And <laughs> how naive, really, like when you think about it. But they thought they could fight back and take on the Romans, right? Then you had the Pharisees who just kind of knuckled down and worked on their holiness. And they were going to usher in the Messiah. And then you had the Sadducees. And the Sadducees kind of... Um, they kind of really just got into bed with Rome and compromised, you know, and so that they could hold on to some kind of level of influence. But none of these approaches worked because none of these approaches embodied kingdom authority until Jesus came. So the whole notion of authority for those people who followed Jesus and were listening to his words was just this idea that it was just a controlling power, right? They just, it wouldn't have sat very comfortably with them at all. And their dream was to completely overthrow it. Authority them, to them just was not a good thing. And in Luke 4, we can see that, um, that Jesus goes out to the wilderness and he spends time there really demonstrating to the enemy that, that the enemy had no influence over him at all, that he had no power and that he had no control in any way. And he came back from that in authority. It tells us that in scripture. Jesus came back from that experience in authority. Like this had always been Satan's objective, right? From the beginning of time, he thought that he could try and manipulate and control God. And in his naivety, he offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world because at that point he still had dominion, but he didn't know what was coming. And how, uh, how short-sighted and how uh, full of pride was the enemy in this moment when he thought that he could offer Jesus the, kingdom of, the kingdoms of the world. So Jesus then sent out the 72 to proclaim the gospel. We looked at this passage last week, if you can remember. And they returned amazed by everything that had happened because the demons had submitted to them in the name of Jesus. They were buzzing. They came back just so pumped that this had all gone so well. Jesus then tells them in Luke 10, verse 19, he says, look, I've given you authority. I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy. And you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you. 
Now, as you can imagine, this very concept would have just blown their mind, that they could in any way have authority, never mind over the enemy. Um, it just wasn't what they were culturally entitled to. And, uh, and, and for them, they would have been thinking that it was Rome that they could have authority over. But actually, Jesus is telling them, do you know what? You actually are having authority over the enemy of your souls right now. But particularly what Jesus says here when he says, I have given you authority. You see, the authority that we have as followers of Jesus primarily belongs to Jesus. He delegates it to us, right? Sometimes I think for the universal church, that's where we've got this wrong. The authority belongs to Jesus. We get to steward it. He delegates it to us. We're given it by the one who has the keys to the kingdom. It's not ours to abuse, to throw around, because Jesus never did that. He didn't do that. And there's this tension that exists for us as believers with this really tight principle that we need to walk this line really carefully. Okay, we need to do this in the way that Jesus did. We can partner with him to usher people into the presence, okay? But it's his authority and we can't abuse it. And so when Jesus speaks about walking among snakes and scorpions and crushing them, he's essentially teaching people that, that, that we then have this authority, and not, not to literally walk among snakes. You'll never catch me walking among snakes. I'm just letting you know that, right? <laughs> I'll give scorpions a go, but definitely not snakes. Um, he's not actually saying, like, literally walk among snakes and scorpions. What he's saying is we have the authority to trample on the schemes and the strategies and the plans of the enemy that there's a better way, that not in an arrogant kind of we've got this all kind of figured out way, but more in the, in the idea that we keep him under our feet and that we pave the new way on top led by the Spirit and that tramples down, that presses down the work of the enemy. In Matthew 28 at, at the Great Commission, okay, just before Jesus uh, goes to heaven, he's, he, it says that he, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven on, and on earth. So Jesus had been given all authority. Therefore, you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you and be sure of this. Boy, this is a comfort. I am with you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, this, these people who were just about to watch Jesus go, like, they were still trying to work this thing out, right? They didn't really know, like, what, where are we going with this? What happens next? And in those early days, the church was even just kind of becoming a thing. Like, you know, they were just like, right, we're a bunch of people. We love this man. Now, now what do we do? You know, it was becoming established, but Jesus was preparing them by telling them, right, through the cross, I've defeated and I've taken the dominion back from the enemy. And because I now have this authority, I can now send you out to fulfill the original design of stewarding the loving uh, rule and reign of God on earth. That is our purpose as the church. But for the early church, this last instruction from Jesus wasn't about authority over people. But it was like this apostolic mandate from Jesus to take kingdom authority over those powers and principalities in order that the activity of the king would be the preeminent spiritual force on earth. That's it. 
that's what this is all about. It wasn't just about survival for the early church. We know that persecution broke out and, and they didn't come, become inwards and retreat. And, you know, as long as me and my wee family are all right, it doesn't matter. The rest of the world, you know, can go to pot. That's not their reaction here. Um, but it was this steady, ongoing influence of the kingdom on earth. What God is demonstrating through the whole principle of kingdom authority is that there's an alternative life-offering system-changing, power-shifting way to do this. You see, when authority becomes about power and control, that's not, not the a kind of authority that Jesus presented to people because that's an abuse of authority and it's entirely self-serving, okay? It becomes about our ego and it becomes about how we manipulate and control people. Mark Sayers says it very poetically. He says... Um, Nope, that's not Mark Sayers. Mark Sayers isn't there. Okay, it's, uh, he says that spiritual, there he is, good man, Mark. He says, spiritual authority is the cut through currency in this complex new world. Okay, it's the only way we're going to see the better way, the kingdom way, the heaven way come is by doing it with spiritual authority. And it's so different to authority in the world at the moment. So as those who follow Jesus, we now have his permission to take the authority of Jesus and to shake up the world. That's what we have his permission to do. But it's pertinent that we do it with a Jesus-centered Jesus understanding of it. You see, this is what we need to remember in this quick summary as we embody kingdom authority. Jesus defeated the enemy and all the powers of hell on the cross. And then through the resurrection, he took the dominion and the authority back from the enemy. And then through the relationship that the disciples had with Jesus, the authority was handed over to them. It was a gift that cost Jesus dearly. And we must always remember what it cost him. The, the disciples could only, and we can only function in this level of authority and when it runs in parallel with a deepening relationship with Jesus. The moment we get an entitlement kind of attitude about it, especially towards this area. We, we've just totally missed Jesus's heart. We've missed his example. And we must look at how he stewarded his authority and the influence of his ministry and how it spilled out beyond the borders of even the Jews at the time into the Romans of the day and follow his lead. You see, Jesus didn't come throwing a spiritual weight about but he was still recognized by people outside of the, the church, if you like, of the day as one who had ultimate authority. Even the Roman centurions took notice. Now, to understand how like, mind-blowing this is that these Roman centurions took notice, I want to tell you about, so can we jump wherever he is to um, Polybius or that man? I'm really bad with the pronunciation of all these things. It's in choosing their centurions. This is a Greek historian, right? And he's writing about Rome. And he says, in choosing their centurions, the Romans look not so much for the daring or the firing type, but rather they look for men who are natural leaders and possess a stable and imperturbable temperament. Not men who will open the battle and launch attacks, but those who are going to stand their ground even when they're worsted or hard-pressed and will die in defense of their posts. Like to, to, to die in the defense of your post, you better believe in what you're fighting for, right? Okay, you need to have a strong conviction that that is the truth, right? So to be a Roman centurion, to your very core, you would have believed that this thing was the, the right way to live. And to be selected as a centurion, you had to be loyal to Caesar above everything else. Right? Caesar was this self-proclaimed son of God. He, he called himself the son of God. Uh, 
talk about arrogance. <laughs> and, uh, and, and to you, Caesar, as a centurion, to you, Caesar was a deity, right? And so when he gave a command, the authority that he had, it, it, it sure as anything happened. So when we read about the centurion in Matthew chapter 8, who went himself to request that Jesus come and heal his servant, we understand that he recognized that the authority that was on Jesus far exceeded that of the cause that he had given his life to. He could have sent a servant. Such was the influence of this centurion. But he realized that his political authority was no match for Jesus' kingdom authority. So much so that this is what he said to Jesus. He said, just say the word. Just say the word and my servant's going to be healed. He recognized that in Jesus, his very word alone was going to bring about healing. As powerful as Caesar was, he couldn't do that. He couldn't declare healing and it happened. Right? So that just, Jesus trumps Caesar's authority and the centurion knew it. And we see it again when we hear about another Roman centurion and we find him at the cross when Jesus is dying on the cross. And in Matthew 27, he declares, he says, truly this is the son of God. You see, this centurion realized that Caesar was a counterfeit. He was a counterfeit deity. And when he saw Jesus at his weakest and his most vulnerable from a human perspective, he was so impacted by the authority that Jesus embodied because of the very way that the, the actual earth reacted to his death. And so even this simple statement, surely this man is the son of God, would have been a dangerous thing for him to say because by saying that Jesus was the son of God, he was saying that Caesar wasn't, right? And that's the very thing that he built his whole career upon. Jesus's actions of humility and submission to the will of the Father were in such stark contrast to Caesar Augustus that it shook this man to his core. He was, in essence, abandoning every notion of power and authority that he had built his whole career upon. Jesus's demonstration of kingdom authority shook their political systems right to their foundations, and so it should be today. So, I'm coming to a close, you'll be glad to hear. As, as for us as the church, in these days, what do we get to do with this authority? Well, we get to steward it, right, in two ways. The first way that we get to steward this authority is through prayer. Okay, it's a bit of a no-brainer. But uh, Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 16, he says, um, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. There it is. There's that prophetic declaration again. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You see, this verse is making this really powerful connection between heaven and earth. It's saying that both realms are equally real, but they're also explicitly tied together. And we have been given these keys. Jesus gives us these keys too. We now have the authority as his followers like he had. And so this principle of binding and loosen simply means to forbid. That's what it is to bind, to forbid by an indisputable authority. I think I have that on another slide. And, and to loose means to permit by an indisputable authority. It was really the, the practice of the rabbis at the day, the people who taught at that time. And, um, and what they were able to do was they could bind or shut down wrong interpretations of Scripture, or they could loose or release new interpretations of Scripture. So when Jesus is taking on the role of a rabbi here, what he is essentially saying to the early church and to his disciples, he's saying, you know, we've been given authority from him to declare and decree, to forbid or to permit through prayer, 
fresh, relevant application of his word to our world. So when we read the word and we give the Holy Spirit the freedom to captivate our imaginations, Jesus is really giving us permission as a church to wrestle with it and to be engaged in this process of living out what the true meaning of scripture is. As the church, we have kingdom authority to set in motion the kingdom mission. And we can bind wrong interpretations of scripture and unbiblical mindsets, and heaven knows we need to do that, right? Especially those that masquerade as religious because they're wrong interpretations of scripture. And then we also have the authority to loose spirit-inspired interpretations to help bring the word of God to life, to be a relevant, culture-changing, darkness-shifting reality. In our wrestling and in our deep outworking of the teaching of Jesus, our job as the church becomes less about causing something to happen in heaven, but it's more about making happen on earth what is already ordained to happen in heaven. You see, in so many ways, we're not waiting on God. He's just waiting on us. He's just waiting on us. N.T. Wright says it. Oh, there, there he is. Oh, Johnny, will you take over there because I'm losing it. He says, he says, why is authority like this? He says, because God wants to catch human beings up in the work that he's doing. He doesn't want to do it by bypassing us. He wants us to be involved in his work. And as we are involved, listen to this, so we ourselves are being remade, right? So we actually also get transformation through the ongoing outworking of kingdom authority. So as we pray, as we grow in authority, and as we learn to take authority over those powers and principalities that have exalted themselves against the name of Jesus, and even more than that, when we pray with other believers, when we come into agreement to take authority over those influences that come against the rule and reign of Jesus, that's what it is to walk in the fullness of the kingdom authority. You see, remember his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. We know that first well in our church. But are we, so I suppose I wanna, I wanna hit you with this question this morning, are we as the, the body of Christ, are we gonna let the enemy have dominion over our towns, over our city and over our land when Jesus came to save the whole world? Are we going to let him do it anymore? So there's real life, relevant battles that you're facing every day, and good grief, we're all facing them, aren't we? Every day, that those things that exist in front of us, we can bind up the wrong elements of those, and we can loose biblical kingdom principles through prayer as the Holy Spirit leads us. You see, when we pray and become more aware of what kingdom authority really is, we learn how to use our words and our actions to cultivate the ways of grace in the world all around us. And we see this in the early church, right? I want to give you this really practical example of what they did. They, they were binding and loosening scripture in the early church. The apostles wrestled with all of those scriptures that, that kind of um, implied that, that the kingdom was only for the Jewish people. Okay, they worked that out and they realized that actually um, this principle um, of taking it to the Gentiles was actually the proper interpretation of the scripture. So Peter got to be the one to bring the kingdom to the Gentiles first. They had kingdom authority. When he washed the feet of the disciples in John 13. Jesus, or the disciples had been disagreeing over position, right? There were looking to see who was going to have the most influence in the kingdom, who would have the greatest position. And this, he says here in John 13, verse 4, 
I've only a page to go, stick with me, right? He says, Jesus got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I can't express to you the, the um, uncomfortableness of this very action that Jesus did. You, you, you really sort of need to know a have a deep understanding of the culture to know how much this action of Jesus would have reverberated right throughout the group. But he uses this very practical way to show them how worldly, sub, or worldly authority was subverted by kingdom ways. Their hearts, their attitudes, their prejudices, all of the so, social hierarchies that they were trying to set up were totally shocked by what Jesus did. They didn't understand that kingdom authority came through humility and through servanthood. They didn't even understand that for a moment. And I don't know if anybody in here have actually ever had your feet washed in this way. Um, it's, it's, um, it's not a very comfortable thing, but it's deeply relational. It's, it's relational to the core. And we can be sure that walking in kingdom authority is going to offend it's going to shake ours and other people's sense of rightness and order. But walking in authority in the way Jesus does, it's going to make other people uncomfortable in ways they're not going to expect. Through this really basic action, Jesus tenderly, in his graceful way that he does, he exposes their pride and he exposes their false humility. It's hard to know how he um, plan to wash their feet? I don't know. Um, or did he just see their disagreement as this moment where he could actually begin to teach them more about the kingdom? But Jesus didn't set aside his authority. Instead, he demonstrated that that authority wasn't wrapped up in status, and it certainly wasn't rooted in pride. But God-inspired, heavenly designed authority was best displayed through services to other people, through acts of humility. Jesus' authority was always about the good of those that he served. He wasn't so much concerned about this image of being a servant and being really humble and being really holy, but he just actually wanted to embody it. He just wanted to get on with it. This guy, Bruce, says um, this, and with this, I'm nearly done, okay? Come on, Bruce. I'm, not, I'm just not going well with technology today. He says, the form of God was not exchanged for the form of a servant, but it was revealed in the form of a servant. In the washing of their feet, the disciples, though they did not understand at the time, they saw a rare unfolding of the glory and the incarnate word and a rare declaration of the character of the Father himself. You see, Jesus, who has power and authority over everything on earth, is secure enough. And he's free enough to be radically sacrificial, to act like a slave. Picture this, the king of heaven crawling on his hands and his knees around the dirty feet of his followers. Jesus was so enriched by his unity with the heavenly father. And he was sure of the kingdom authority that was his to steward that he was liberated from the opinions of others to such an extent that he could have this level of humility. He was demonstrating to us that, that moving in his authority, we're called to lift up those people who are below us, to actually share in this as well. That's how the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit plays out. That is the original mandate of heaven. And the world needs to relearn that the authority shown by God is inherently at its very core. It's good. It's good. It's healthy. And it's about loving people. Jesus never dominates. That's just what the enemy does. So for us, as followers of the way of the kingdom, with kingdom authority comes kingdom responsibility. So to bring this all 
to a close this morning. We steward kingdom authority best by praying for deeper, radical revelation of Jesus' ways to break into people's lives and by living them out through radical actions of love. Wouldn't it be amazing, guys, if we could be known as the people who stand humbly in the counsels of God in order that we can stand boldly in the counsels of men? So let me pray for you this morning. Can I do that? God, we know that you have called so many people in this body into places of influence, God, and we glorify you for that. Father, we, we thank you for the influence that, that so many people have, God, but we are not overlooking the everyday influence either. The everyday influence of mothers and fathers, of, of teachers, of nurses, of friends who just get alongside people and love them in the way that you did. And so, God, I pray for us as a body that you would give us deeper revelation of the truth of your spirit, God. That you would give us confidence to know how to steward your authority and that your spirit would release release your kingdom authority over our time, God, over every principality and over every power that's set up to, um, to, to come against the gates of the church, God. We, we just pray a release, Father. We pray that you would continue to move, God. We pray that above all else, that your kingdom influence would be the, the most pertinent and the most powerful force at work. In Jesus' name, amen.